You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. It is about that time. The doctor is in the building. Give us a call, 011-8830702. And the WhatsApp line, 072-702-1702. Dr. Chris Smith, happy Monday. Happy Monday to you as well. How are you doing? I am good, good. Just turned 37, but I still look... Somebody in the office said I look 45. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's the wrong way around, isn't it? Most people, most people you say, oh, I thought you were older. But, um, they did it for you. Exactly. Thank you so, so much for the birthday wish to everybody sending through birthday wishes. Thank you so much. But let's get, get straight to the lines. 011-8830702 and the WhatsApp line 0727021702. Rob in Santon, you've got a question for the docs. Hi. Yes, hi. Hi, hi Chris. Chris, I've got a question about climate change. Now, I've read an article which I had about two years ago, but I haven't been able to get through since then. It's about three million years ago. The um, CO2 levels were approximately the same as they are today. And at that time, the sea levels were about 30 metres higher than they are today around the Cape Coast in South Africa. Now, sort of, that tells me that, well, we can expect this thing to happen again because, you know, 30, I don't know how they got, um, they, they measured that CO2 level at that time, but if it's correct, to me, it's what we're expecting is not because of aeroplanes and cars and all the rest. Um, can you comment on this? Are you aware of it? Yeah, sure. Um, I think you're referring to a period about 30 million years ago. It's called the Oligocene-Eocene boundary. And at that time, the Earth did go through a profoundly hot spell. So hot, in fact, that the poles completely melted. And we know this because we've got geological evidence, not just in raised sea levels, but people have found various seafloor remnants that would, that would explain and account for why this would happen. What probably accounted for that was a whole range of factors, including the natural cycle of where the Earth is in relation to the sun, the way in which the planet wobbles on its axis and tilts and that affects how much energy comes into the the planet system once you end up releasing lots of carbon dioxide you get greenhouse effects that warm things up you lose ice you reflect less energy off into space and you go into this sort of runaway greenhouse effect phase and that's probably partly what happened geology plays a really important role though and what people don't perhaps appreciate is that the Himalayas are very young mountains and they sprung up in the last 50 million years ago or so. And that's because India used to be down where Antarctica is and it went right the way across the ocean until it rammed into the Eurasian plate and it started to push up the Himalayas. Once you push up Himalayas, you then expose lots of silicates and other rocks that love binding to carbon dioxide. And so they would have pulled all of the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and then plunged the Earth after that into the deep freeze for a while. And we got an ice age. So basically, the Earth has gone through phases because of geology and various factors of hot times and cold times for billions of years. But what's different this time is that we can track where we should be on those cycles. We can look at what the various measures and pointers are that tell us the direction of travel that the Earth should be going in, in terms of where its temperature should be heading based on various parameters in the atmosphere and so on. And right now, we should be going into a cooling phase. The Earth should be getting colder for a range of reasons. In fact, what's happened is the Earth is warming up and we're going up in temperature stage by stage. The factor that's different this time 
is that there's enormous amounts of man-made CO2 emissions. So our carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere are out of kilter with where we would expect them to be based on historical records and where they would be based on the behaviour of the climate system. And that leads us to conclude, based on a range of other evidence sources and so on, that we are forcing the climate and we have reversed the direction of travel and we are therefore, instead of going into the deep freeze, we're going into the oven at the moment, and that's why we're getting climate change. Ooh, thank you so much uh, uh, for that question, Rob in Santon. Poloso in Centurion, hi. Hey, uh, Dr. Chris. Uh, um, I need to ask, in terms of sitting in a meeting room, if you get into a meeting room, the next meeting you will gravitate to the same chair that you were sitting on. So generally I see people sitting where they, they sat last time. What causes that? Oh, nice one. <laughs> what a brilliant observation. Yeah. And you know, I guarantee there'll be people listening to this all over the place nodding, going, yep, that's me. <laughs> I do that. I mean, the only exception to where I generally sit in the same chair each time is when I get in the car. Because if I got in the car and I wasn't behind <laughs> the steering wheel, I would have a problem, wouldn't I? But um, I, I probably do the same, actually. I probably do head for head for the same sort of vague area of the room. And it's just habitual, isn't it? We are creatures of habit, and our, our subconscious makes life easy for us on purpose. It takes a lot of the decision-making away, because the evidence we have from psychology is making decisions, however trivial they are, takes cognitive energy and you only have so much decision-making ability in a day so what we tend to do is to resort to habitual behavior to save ourselves from having to process loads of things and make decisions when we don't need to because that frees up cognitive resource and it enables you to be vigilant and keep your attention on things that do matter more than things that you know are already a safe bet. You know that chair's a safe place to sit. You know you can get out of the room if you need to because it's too boring. You can fake a phone call or something, <laughs> uh, etc. You know that chair's a good prospect, so you're going to go for it again. No decision-making needed. Make life easy for yourself. So that's really how we've evolved to behave. We go for an option which enables us to use our prior knowledge that's safe, informed by experience, and then we let history repeat itself. We rinse and repeat, as it were, because that way we're not wasting cognitive uh, resources and resilience on things we don't need to. So can I actually take that question a step further, Doctor? And thank you, Poloso in Centurion, for that brilliant question. Is I have noticed, um, and maybe a study like this has never been done, but whenever I am going to a conference, anything where a whole group of people are meeting, at some point I'll find black people sitting together, white people sitting together, Indian people sitting together, and maybe it's not even race specific, but people that are similar kind of like get together. And I don't know if it's very, I don't know, why, why does that happen? Well, it's going to be familiarity for a start, isn't it? Because if you go into a room and you spot someone who's got something in common with you, if, you, if all other things being equal, you think, well, who am I going to start a conversation with? You'll probably find the most common ground with that person who's got at least one thing in common with you straight away. So you'll probably start chatting with them. Once you chat with them, you've then got something in common with the people that also they have something in common with. So there'll be other people who will congregate and aggregate into a group. And so then when you then move into the lecture theatre or wherever, you'll, you'll end up sitting together. And then you'll see 
other people come in and they look for the people they already know and so friends beget more friends and associations and you'll get these little clusters of people who then become bigger clusters of people we were talking about this at the weekend because we was we were having a discussion with a whole bunch of us who went to medical school saying where did you sit in the lecture theater and there were groups of people who would just like seek, seek each other out every time <laughs> and they would all sit and there were people who loved the front row there were people who loved the back row there were people who loved those seats on the ends of aisles yes. that were quite close to the door so you could get out in a hurry <laughs> and, and then there are going to be all the people who know those people so they're going to yes. have a similar mentality similar mindset similar belief system they're all going to get into the same sort of pattern aren't they so unsurprisingly you find this reproducing itself wherever you look and I think that makes complete sense. Like I think about whenever I travel um, to p very predominantly white countries where there's like literally no black person. Uh, I think I was in uh, Eastern Germany um, at one point and there's like no black people there. And then it, I'm in the mall and this man like... He stands out right at the end, comes walking to me, he's like, my sister! And I was like, my brother! <laughs> yeah. like, from across the whole continent. <laughs> but, um, and I he mean, was I did the same thing, Nigeria, right? Nigeria, but you're just so excited to, to bump same into continent. someone. I mean, you know, <laughs> but no, I did exactly the same thing because I was in Japan. And, um, you know, you go into Tokyo, there's 20 million people in Tokyo and there aren't many white guys. And, you know, I, I was in Tokyo and you see a white person, you think, well, they probably speak English <laughs> and they probably can tell me why I can't find my way home. Yes. And so I would home in on the white guy because he would probably know how to read the kanji and say, this is where to get off the train, Chris. This is where you've gone wrong. Uh, I, I think that, you know, we're making light of it, but I think this is just human nature, isn't it? We will look for things that we know are a safe bet, likely to have things in common with us, things that, that will probably help us and support us. Yes. And a lot of the time the cultural values are part of that i i also think for me the very rare occasions um mine was in london where i heard someone speaking stwana and i've never been so excited in my life like <laughs> i'm randomly in a shop and i'm just enjoying my anonymity and i'm hearing somebody having a come like hello hello friend family i'm also from south africa it's the most exciting thing but that makes complete sense let's go to robert in lanceria hey robert Hello there. Uh, fabulous program as usual. Uh, in the 1640s, the River Thames froze over and they called it a mini ice age. They had bonfires on the ice in the River Thames. Are we likely to have anything of that uh, in the comparatively near future? Mm. Hello, Robert. This coincided with a period known as the Maunder Minimum the sun went through a phase of low-level activity. And we know that the sun has an 11 or 12-year cycle of activity when it's more active for some years, less active for the next X number of years. And those things directly affect how much energy enters the Earth system. And you can get situations where you have a, a, a range of factors conspire together. So you have low levels of sun activity, so therefore low thermal input to the planet. You have other slight changes in the way the climate's working just by chance. You also have uh, changes in, in the what we call Milankovic cycles and so on. All these things are integrated together to affect the particular weather that we get at any given moment in time. This is unlikely to repeat itself 
anytime soon. It, there was a mini ice age in the 1860s, and also um, they've had periods of, of cooling since then, but nothing on that kind of scale. And it, it was enormously high impact. And in fact, one lovely story I did come across was that it directly contributed to music. And you might say, what on earth is Chris going on about? Well, people like Stradivari, uh, who made amazing violins, used wood from certain parts of Italy, which had grown during the Maunda Minimum and during that mini ice age. And the wood was much denser, much harder, and they say might have lent itself to some of the acoustic characteristics of the instruments that he made. And so we have uh, the mini ice age to thank for the fact that we have some wonderful instruments to play as well. Very, very interesting, that one. Uh, Costa in Johannesburg CBD, hi. Hello, Lucille, uh, how are you? Good, thanks, and you? Yes, I got a question for Naked Scientist. I want to ask, these guys who are making electric cars, uh, why can't they make it that it charges itself when it's moving, like these cars that we have, that they're charging the battery? Why can't it charge itself that when you buy it, you don't spend nothing for life? Is it that they want you to come back for something? You must spend something? I, but surely I believe they can make something that can charge itself with the AC. That'd uh, be good, wouldn't it? Well, there's a couple of things to unpack here. One is that a moving car is actually doing work against pushing the atmosphere out of the way because it's got air resistance. As the car moves down the road, it's pushing it or furrowing out a car-shaped tunnel through the atmosphere because there's all those billions of molecules to move out of the way. And they all weigh something. And when you push billions and billions of things, you've got to push billions and billions of tons of weight, effectively. So your your car is pushing enormous amounts of weight out of the way and that involves doing work that's what we call friction so you have to burn fuel in order to do that Woo. Um, so you have to burn fuel to do that because you're making up for the work that the car is doing that's that energy is coming from either the fuel in a fossil fuel powered car or the battery in an electric car if you were to strap a turbine onto the outside of the car then you would basically be doing more work because you'd be pushing some pushing the car along to then drive the turbine and so as nothing is 100% efficient, you would have less energy coming back than you actually spent doing that. And so you would lose energy, you'd be worse off trying to do that. There are ways, though, that you can make electric cars and people are looking actively at ways of making them more autonomous and self-charging. And one way is to put into road systems charging rails so that uh, as vehicles go past, they can either attached to something physically or pick up energy remotely, wirelessly. You can use a magnetic field, for example, and the car passes a conductor through that magnetic field, which then induces a current in the conductor and is used to top up the car's batteries. People are actively exploring all of these as possibilities to improve the range and versatility of electric vehicles. All right, thank you so much for that question. Let's check out some of your WhatsApp voice notes. Hello, Rebuhile. Oscar, can you ask the prof, naked prof, why is the brain forgetting? And how much can we help the brain to remember? And finally, what capacity are we as an average person using our brains? Thank you. 
Well, we often say that the average human uses only 10% of their brain, but that's an utter myth. Evolution would not have endowed you with a massive great brain to only use 10% of it. We need all of our brain all the time. And you only have to look at someone who's had an injury to their head or their nervous system or had a stroke, for example, and you can see the disability that confronts them. And that's with a tiny fraction of their brain not working. So it's a myth that we only use a tiny amount of our brain. We're using all our brain all the time. But when we do a certain task, because certain bits of the nervous system are specialised for doing that particular task, we might augment the activity in one particular area over and above other areas for a short period of time. And that's perhaps where this myth comes from, that you're only using 10% of your brain, you're using all of it all the time. In terms of forgetting a memory, this is a very interesting question, because one thing is that we're being assailed by information all the time. I mean... I'm looking at a wall that's blue. I'm looking at a whole bunch of levers and controls in a studio I'm sitting in. I'm sitting on a chair. I've got sensory information coming in from all sides, but I'm only attending to a tiny fraction of it. My brain is throwing away a load of it. So remembering things is a decision of what we need to remember and what we mustn't throw away. And the brain makes a balancing act between presenting things that it thinks we need to be aware of and that it thinks we need to remember and chucking away the vast majority of it to prevent sensory overload. To remember things really well, we usually have to rehearse them. We normally have to get the brain to see them a number of times, run through them, and then we establish a way of remembering them and a way of accessing that information. And very often we don't know we know the information, but we have managed to retain it all the same. But most of the time it's not so much about remembering, it's more about forgetting and how much the brain is chucking away. If it didn't chuck all that stuff away, we wouldn't possibly be able to cope. Okay, and I'm glad that gives all of us a little bit of assurance that we are using our brains. Well, some of us. Let's go to more of the voice notes. Hello, Orle Wuhilen, doctor. Uh, why is it that if you can leave anything, any food open in your house, the, the cockroaches will attack it? But not the salt. You can leave the salt open, but they, they never they never attack it. Why, why is that? Well, there's a difference between salt and food. Salt is a nutrient. It's a mineral, sodium chloride. You need a little bit of that in your diet every day, but not too much, because if you eat lots of salt or food containing lots of salt, then it does drive up blood pressure, and it's therefore uh, ideal to minimise your salt intake, because most people will get more than enough salt just from eating a normal diet. That's for that reason animals won't actively seek out salt unless they're salt deficient. And some animals do actively seek out salt. And we, you know, out in the bush put salt licks and things for some of the game because they like to lick the salt because when they're running around, they may find that some aspects of the environment are a bit salt poor and they will come and lick pebbles and rocks and things to get salt that they can then take into their body. We're not like that. Cockroaches are not like that. They don't need that source of salt. But food, food smells nice. And these sorts of animals flies, cockroaches, other sorts of invertebrates have exquisitely sensitive senses of smell. Moths can smell other moths from, you know, the smell of another moth down to parts per billion. Their life depends on it. And so they will use their antennae, which are covered in tiny nerve endings, which have got chemical docking stations for the nice smells that food makes on them. And they can, by comparing the relative strengths of the smells across their two antennae, they know which direction the smell is coming from, they make their way towards it and then they feast on it. And if they're animals like ants, which are social species, then they may even leave a chemical trail behind to tell the rest of their ant mates 
where to come and get the food. All right, uh, we've got a message on the WhatsApp line that says, please ask the scientists, how does it work with a mother who has a blood group A negative, a father who is A positive, and a child who is born O negative? The grandfather on the maternal side is also O negative. Right, well, this is perfectly uh, reasonable actually and i think i think this is very similar to my own situation i think i'm i'm o negative blood but the answer is you can be group a because there are the, the blood groups we get are group a group b and group o people with group a blood make a marker on their cells called a and they have antibodies in their blood against b people who are group b have b markers on their cells and antibodies against a People who are group O have no markers on their cells, hence O, and they have antibodies against A and B. Some people can be AB blood because they'll have markers for A and B, but we'll leave that to one side for a moment. You can be group A if you have a gene from your mum that is group A and a gene from your dad, which is group O, because the only marker you'll have on your cells is therefore the A marker because the gene that is for A is the only one you've got. So naught plus A equals A. And if you have, therefore, a mum who's group A because she's A and O, she's got one gene for A, one gene for O, and you've got a dad who's group O, in other words, he must have two O genes because that's called the recessive genotype, then they will make sperms and eggs. The mum will make sperms and eggs which are A sperms or O, sorry, A eggs or O eggs. The dad will make sperms which are only O sperms. So, therefore, your outcomes will be a child who's group A, or children who are group O, and both are perfectly reasonable to expect. All right, and I think that makes super sense. A quick one, Doctor, and I don't know if you'll be able to get this one in. In biology, do we really die, or reproduction is our survival to the next generation? Well, we die in terms of the aggregation of cells that is us as an individual dies, but our genes are propagated on into our next generation. And that's actually partly why we regard us as trying to find a fit partner with whom we can reproduce because though we are passing on to the next generation our genes which continue to exist albeit in a mixed up form because when we have sex we mix our genes together to make ourselves genetically fitter but individually we will have a lifetime and we will cease to function as an independent organism. Dr Chris Smith always a pleasure the Naked Scientist.